So this evening, as Andy said, we're continuing the uh, series in Revelation. And uh, we'll look this morning at the first seven verses. And this evening we're going to be looking at the second half of chapter one. And uh, I'm going to read it um, right at the very beginning. Because it gives us a great place to start our worship. So you remember that John is writing a letter to the seven churches. And we're going to pick up the passage at uh, verse nine. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash round his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. I must say, after eight and a half months of nothing more taxing than remembering the words of the Grand Old Duke of York, to hear that we were going to be looking at Revelation, I was obviously thrilled. (laughs) But may I remind you that this morning Tim said that there are many interpretations, and this is just one. I once heard Andy Hawthorne of the Message Trust say, and I'm paraphrasing, that young people today are desperate for something exciting in their lives, something to live for, someone to follow who is worth following. And we offer them gentle Jesus who is meek and mild, and we wonder why they're not interested. When we think of Jesus and what he's like, we often picture the baby in Bethlehem, born in a manger, Or we picture him as a carpenter working in his father's workshop. Or a teacher who taught throughout Jerusalem and around there. Or a beaten and wounded man who died on a cross. And whilst those things are accurate descriptions of who he is, they're not the full picture. They're not the Jesus that we find in Revelation. The Jesus of Revelation is the God who sits in judgment over his people and so many of us 
don't like to hear that. We prefer to think of Jesus who only shows grace, compassion and mercy. It's like we're kids in a sweet shop and we're picking and choosing the things that we like, the characteristics of Jesus that we're happy with. And it's hard to accept the rest. And so we have two extremes. Jesus who is king and judge over all things. Jesus who is saviour and servant. Both extremes have their problems. One view gives a distorted view of Jesus being distant, unpredictable or someone to be scared of. Whereas the other leads him to be in our domesticated pet who will fulfil and facilitate our agenda. Both are wrong. In the first instance, we need to remember that it's the same Jesus who is so powerful and almighty who also loves us more than we can ever know. And he wants us to be secure in him. And when it comes to simply viewing him as servant, we need to be reminded that he's a mighty ruler who calls us to his agenda, who calls us to full repentance. And I hope that as we look at this first chapter of Revelation, we see a much more complete picture of what Jesus is like. And to do that, I'm going to work through pretty much from verse 9 to the end. We, first of all, hear John identifying himself with the suffering believers by referring to himself as their brother and companion in suffering. He explains that believers of Jesus will experience suffering, and, well, that's true. That's something we can all affirm, isn't it? People then and now suffer for their faith. And not always just for the faith, but bad things happen. And sometimes life is difficult. I've heard many people talk about how hard life is and then they became a Christian. It's like it's this magic cure. Well, that's not the case. It's never as simple as that. But throughout, pe- uh, throughout history, people have had trials and tribulations. None of us are immune to problems. They come to everyone at some point and we can choose how we handle them, as did John. He was a man with problems. He wasn't trying to show off about how spiritual he was. But he was alone in the Isle of Patmos, where he'd been sent by the authorities to prevent him telling people about Jesus. And whilst he was there, he was also patient. And it turned out to be a time where he truly met with God. People were usually there if they were hardened criminals. But it was here, in the most unlikely of places, that he had that encounter with God. Throughout the Bible, we see that God often speaks to people in their greatest need. Moses was in exile when he saw the burning bush. Elijah heard a still quiet voice of God while he was running for safety. Daniel was in exile when he met with God. Sometimes God will reveal himself in the most difficult of circumstances. And we're told in verse 10 that John was completely filled with the Holy Spirit. And it was then that he heard this great voice speaking to him. And when he turned to hear where this, see where this voice was coming from, he was fearful and fell at his feet. Well, fell on his knees as if he were dead. <laughs> this was Jesus speaking to John and telling him to write everything down and send it to the churches. There were seven churches all in the same region. Seven in the Bible is a perfect number. It signifies completeness, which is why it's understood that this message wasn't just for those seven churches but it's relevant for all Christians today. John will have been familiar with the churches that he was writing to because he wasn't physically far from them. 
Apparently there were 60 known churches at that time, and it was written to these specific ones to highlight specific things that were going on. In verse 12, John saw seven golden lampstands. Now this wasn't one lampstand with seven parts to it. It was seven separate lampstands. And one thing this shows us is that there's light enough for each of these churches. The gold indicates the presence of God because the spiritual meaning of gold is purity of God. So the light of these seven these churches have doesn't come from worldly wisdom, but it comes from God. We then read in the midst of these lampstands there was a man. This man was Jesus. And we read a rather interesting description of him. We're told he was dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool and white as snow and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in the furnace and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. The robe that reached down to his feet was a priestly robe, one of authority. And what about the sash? Well, in the Old Testament, high priests um, wore a sash. They wore the full-length robes with a girdle or a sash made of fine linen. So here, Jesus had the robe of a high priest, but the sash was made of gold, which shows the dignity of an important office. Jesus is our high priest. And the role of the high priest was always to take the sacrificial blood into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God. That's exactly what Jesus did. He took his own precious blood to God to do away with our sin. So that's what the robe represents, or at least some interpretation. But what about everything else? His hair was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes were as flame of fire. People think that the white hair means different things. One idea is that it goes with the Old Testament descriptions of the Ancient of Days. Others say it's because of the great light. Jesus is the source of all light, and that's evident there. But the eyes of fire? Well, we've seen throughout the Bible that uh, God is associated with fire. We read that God is a consuming fire. We saw him in the burning bush, a fiery finger of God that burned the Ten Commandments into the rock. And this fire is the Holy Spirit that cleanses us inside by burning that old self and making us new. And eyes indicate wisdom. Jesus' look is so full of wisdom that he looks into our heart and purges out our sin with the fire. And that look will come to Holy Spirit-filled churches and burn so brightly that all that's left will be in the line of uh, it lined up with the will of God. His feet were like fine brass or bronze, and that's a strong purified metal which results from intense heat. And this shows us the purity and the power with which Christ will bring his judgment to the earth. Jesus is standing amidst these seven churches as judge. But he is also standing there, having overcome Satan and the demons. The Bible tells us that Satan and the demons are under his feet. And here this is Jesus, upright, not defeated, overcoming the devil. And what about this double-edged sword coming out of his mouth? 
Well, that represents the power and authority of what Jesus has to say. It's his words by which the world will be judged. Jesus is the word of God. The Bible is a written word of God. God is the author. The Bible is a two-edged sword. And in 1 John 1, no, sorry, John 1 verse 1, we read, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. If you read it often, the Bible will convict you of areas of your life that you might need to change, and it will help you to grow closer to God. The word is powerful. The power of Jesus is beyond understanding. The word, he is the word, and his power is through the word, and it has changed the whole world. He is the source of all power, energy, and light. There is no greater power. So imagine turning around and seeing what John saw. It's not surprising he was overwhelmed by this vision. So I'll ask again, I wonder how do you see Jesus? Do you see him as a baby in a manger? Do you see him only as we imagine he was when he walked the earth? Or do you see him as he is in Revelation, full of power and majesty and at God's right hand? You may have heard about Jesus your whole life. You may, have, you may even be filled with the Holy Spirit. But have you seen Christ as he really is? If we truly understand the power and the majesty of Jesus, I think we'd also be overwhelmed by his power and fall at his feet as if dead. And when that happened to John, what was his message? What was Christ's words to John? It was, do not be afraid or fear not. That phrase is used over 80 times in the Bible, and it's generally to stop people being scared of God's presence. Imagine God saying that to you today. Fear not, do not be afraid. Don't fear your difficult circumstances. Don't fear whatever it is you have to face right now because God is by your side. And he has conquered death and hell and has absolute power over all things. When you face difficult times, whatever they may be, remember that he is standing by your side interceding for you. It's easy to feel defeated in tough situations because our vision of Christ is so limited to our human understanding. But let's go beyond our human limitations and see him as he really is. And that is someone with total power and authority over everything. He is God. We are just people. We're not on the level of God, although sometimes we might try and play the part. But God is God. God alone is powerful and God is in control. And Jesus reassured John with the words, fear not, because fear is not from God. Peace is what Jesus brings. We need to trust him. That fear is better understood as reverence. A holy fear of God, of no one or nothing else. And Jesus then went on to say, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. I am the first and the last. In verse 8, Jesus was, which was before tonight's reading, uh, Jesus was described as the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet and Omega is the last. And here again, Jesus describes himself as the first and the last. Or in other words, as being complete. He was the eternal revelation of God and he was speaking to John, commanded him to write down what should be passed on to the churches. He said, I was dead and now I am alive. We must not only believe 
that he, that who he is and that he saved us. But we must believe that he rose from the grave to do that. His body was what died and rose again. This is the message of salvation. This is the message that we need in a dark world. Jesus' resurrection is a guarantee that we will live forever with him. But Jesus didn't stop there. He explained that he has the keys of death and Hades. Death is a state of condition and Hades is a place of the dead. And in the Bible, the key is a sign of access and authority. Jesus Christ has the authority to decide who lives and who dies. He controls life and death. Now, have you ever been asked to watch a neighbour's house while they're on holiday? I did once, and when they only ended up with one cat instead of two, I wasn't asked again. But if you have, you'll understand this. You're responsible for feeding the pets and watering the plants and generally keeping an eye on the place. You'll be given a house key to enable you to do that. And although the key is just a tiny little bit of metal, just think about what it represents. It represents authority. You have access and authority to everything that your neighbour owns. What Jesus is saying is that his resurrection granted him authority over death, Hades and the grave. He alone is in control of the eternal state, in fact of everything. So when Jesus descended into hell, he took the keys away from the devil and when he rose again, he did away with death. Death was the last enemy to be done away with. The devil can't put anyone into hell. Jesus said, I am the living one. Jesus Christ as the absolute living one. He has life in himself. He is life. He is the source of our life. He has control of everything in heaven, on earth, and in hell. And whilst his holiness and awesomeness of God is way beyond our imagination, God grants his people protection from his wrath. This knowledge should motivate us to do all that we can to prevent those who are outside Christ from dying apart from the grace of God. Verse 20 says, The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. A mystery is a hidden message. The mystery is Jesus. Jesus is widely proclaimed but few really have the understanding or knowing of him. The seven stars are the messengers representing each of those churches, and those messengers spread the light. Jesus is the source of light. He's holding and protecting these stars in his right hand. These messengers have no power in themselves. The light that they give out comes from him. It's important to know that the churches are not more than lampstands. The light is Christ and they are to show him to others. He is in the midst of the churches to minister to us, to search, uh, search us and to enable us. The purpose of the lampstand is not the light itself. It's to bear the light, to hold the light, to display the light to others. Not the lampstand itself even. The church is to bear the light of Christ to a dark world. Sadly, many churches today and known for great worship or preaching or facilities or programs. But that's not what we're called to. I'm sure it's part of it. But ultimately, we're successful to the degree that we reflect Christ. I think that churches 
often forget that we're here to reflect Christ in a dark world. It's not about us and how popular we can be and how many seats we can fill. It's about how much other people can see Jesus in us. In the things we do, in the way we do things, in the people we are. It's all about Jesus. Not of us, all of him. That's what matters. And that's the exact purpose of the church, to elevate the light, to elevate Jesus, to show Jesus to others, to pass on the message of who Jesus is and the very difference he makes to our lives. So many people still see Jesus as that tiny baby in a manger, very different to the Jesus of Revelation. Jesus who will judge all people, but he is also the one who offers us all salvation. I want to finish with a helpful illustration that I read that might help us just grasp the importance of it. It said, imagine that you are at a zoo. As you're looking at the animals, you reach down and pet the head of a small lamb. As you do, the lamb lifts its head and licks your hand. You think, that's nice, but go to move on to the other animals. Suddenly, someone yells, look out. As you turn and see what the commotion is about, it's too late. Standing right in front of you is the biggest, fiercest, most angry lion you've ever seen. He's just escaped from his cage and you are dinner if he chooses. There's no way to escape. Slowly he moves towards you, opening his jaws wider and wider. Then he gets right up to you, reaches out, licks your hand and stands peacefully at your side. You breathe a huge sigh of relief. If that happened, which lick would mean more to you? The lick of the lion or the lick of the lamb? Obviously, it would be the lion. And why? Because a lion could crush you in his jaws as easily as he can lick your hand. The lion doesn't have, uh, the lamb doesn't have that option. The main reason people are not ast- astonished and exuberant about the lamb of God's forgiveness of their sins is that they've li- little or no sense of the lion's raging fury against them. Until we fully understand the consequences of our sin, of a life apart from God, we won't fully appreciate the enormity of God's forgiveness. The Jesus of Revelation is not quite like the gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He's there as judge amidst the churches, but he's also the one who offers to forgive us. He gives us forgiveness. We are here as a lampstand in a dark world to bear the light, to hold the light, to display the light to others. Let's make sure we continually offer the hope of salvation that we know to the dark world around us. Amen.